0: The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse.
1: We now come in our studies to a text which leads us to one of the greatest truths of all the Bible. The verse states that Christ shall never die again, that death has no more dominion over him, and that he died once for all. A proper understanding of these truths would lead a person into freedom from many of the ideas of organized religion and would fix his faith securely in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This text is the flowering and completion of the words of our Lord Jesus spoken on the cross when he cried, It is finished.
0: The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled One Sacrifice. Composer Franz Schubert never completed his musical masterpiece known as the Unfinished Symphony. But nothing could stop Jesus from completing his masterpiece of redemptive work. Just before he died on the cross, Jesus cried out, It is finished. God is fully satisfied with the death of Christ as the one sacrifice that secured salvation for all His people. Do you behold God's sacrifice of His only begotten Son with wonder and gratitude? The Scripture Text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, One Sacrifice.
1: Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee our Father and our God and in the Holy Spirit. Thou alone art able to see the depth of our need, and thou alone art able to be the fulfillment of all that need. Wilt thou bless thy truth to each heart and use it to thine honor and thy glory? We think of all those who have special problems in this hour. Wilt thou be very near to them to comfort and to bless? We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text continues our study in Romans 6, using verses 9 and 10. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died to sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. This text is the flowering and completion of the words of our Lord Jesus spoken on the cross when he cried, it is finished. It is finished. Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Several years ago, a young man came to me after a session of the Sunday school in our church. The lesson had concerned the origin of sin. The teacher had pointed out that sin began in a sinless universe by the rebellion of a created angel. God says of Lucifer, in Ezekiel 28, we read it, Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. The young man asked me how we could be sure that this same process would not occur again, and that sometime in the future, even after the second coming of Christ, another angel would not rebel and start the same cycle of sin over again. I answered that if such an outbreak should occur, it would be necessary for there to be another manifestation of the righteousness of God and another exhibition of His grace in sending Jesus Christ to die in order to save sinners from such a fall. But we have here in our text the assurance that Christ shall never die again, and thus we have the assurance that sin will never break out again in this universe forever. I believe that this text also has its bearing on the question as to whether there is life on any other planet. Are there any beings on Mars? Are there creatures with interplanetary spaceships that are coming into our atmosphere with flying saucers or other instruments that might hold potential menace for us? I think we may answer the question in the negative. There cannot be such creatures. The reasons are as follows. If there were other creatures, they would be of one of three different categories. They would be angel beings that were faithful to God, in which case we would have no fear of them whatsoever, since God tells us that all of his faithful angels are spirits that are created for the purpose of ministering to the needs of those who have been redeemed by Christ and who have become the heirs of salvation. And this we read in the last verse in Hebrews 1. Or in the next place, they would be angels that had followed Satan, who is the prince of this world and the prince of the power of the air. If this were the case, we would know from all of the teaching of the Bible that Satan's force is a limited one. And that it is concentrated on this particular earth. And that it is going to come to the end that has been announced in the book of Revelation. But thirdly, and most important from our point of view, if there were creatures on other planets that were inimical to us, that would mean that they were sinful beings who needed a savior. And it would have been necessary for the Lord Jesus Christ to go to those other worlds and die there for the sins of these beings. But our text assures us fully that the Lord Jesus Christ died once for all, and that he shall never die again, and that death hath no more dominion over him. But far more important than such casual teaching, which sheds light on obscure points in passing, is the definite teaching concerning the security which the believer has in Christ because our Lord died but once. And that he can never die again. The night before the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he fellowshipped with his disciples in what has become known as the Last Supper. When the supper was ended, he took bread, and when he had blessed it, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, this institution of the communion service was very simple, and the Lord never meant it to be a mysterious, magic rite which would confer benefits in itself. If we go back to the history of the evolution of doctrine, we shall find that, beyond question, the idea of the bread and the wine being the actual body and blood of Christ did not exist until centuries after the Lord Jesus lived and died and rose again. When the Lord Jesus Christ said, This is my body, he did not mean that he had two bodies, one that was being held in his hand and the other that was visible holding the bread. The statement is, of course, a figure of speech and must be classified with such statements as I am the door in John 10, and I am the true vine in John 15. Now, no denomination has arisen that brings wood panels into church and breaks off splinters of a door to distribute them to worshipers, even though Christ did say, I am the door. Everyone recognizes that the language in those verses was symbolic. No denomination brings shovels full of road materials into a church building to distribute the pieces of cement, macadam, or rock to the worshipers because Jesus said, I am the way. Such a statement is naturally and correctly understood to be figurative, symbolic. No denomination brings grapevines into the church, breaking off pieces of the wood to give to the worshipers because Christ once said, I am the true vine. Everyone understands that the language is purely symbolic. Now, it's a very great tragedy that anyone has ever come to think that the bread and the wine of the communion service become the real, literal body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly, the early fathers of the church did not so hold. It's true that in those days, when there was no controversy about the matter, there were statements made which might be interpreted in later days as referring to a belief in in the change of the substance of the bread into the substance of the body. A few years ago, a well-known humorist began combing Shakespeare for statements that could be used today of modern sports and modern political events. It's possible to find 20 or 30 sentences scattered throughout Shakespeare's works, which contain words and phrases, which now are applied to baseball. We smile when we see the individual sentences, taken out of context and lumped together. Let me be umpire, we read in Henry VI. Or there is three umpires, ungrammatically stated in the Merry Wives, where we also find, I will run no base. And in the taming of the shrew, we find, slide, while Lady Macbeth cries, out, out, I say. Now we can understand that we laugh at such application of words to modern situations, and we must understand the figurative use of some of the fathers about the bread and the cup to be figurative and not applying to that which was much later in the vocabulary of religious things. In the light of this, we can quote a paragraph from an English historian, MacBride, who has written as follows, quote, several of the fathers have spoken so strongly of eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Christ that it is easy for an ingenious partisan to select passages from their works that shall seem to favor this doctrine, though others positively reject it as a preposterous conclusion. I will merely refer to a decisive passage in Augustine which must be taken as qualifying and explaining away any high-flown tropes and metaphors which Augustine may have used in his devotional works. Quote from Augustine, If a passage be a precept, either forbidding a crime or enjoining a useful or charitable act, it is not figurative. But it is figurative if it seems to command a crime or to forbid a useful or charitable act. When our Lord says, and I'm still quoting St. Augustine, the greatest father of the church, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you, he appears to enjoin a crime. So says the great father of the church, and I'm still quoting, it is therefore a figure teaching that we participate in the passion of the Lord and we must sweetly and passionately treasure up in our memory that his flesh was crucified and wounded for us. End of McBride's quotation from Augustine. Now it's refreshing to find such a clear statement from so great a father of the church that our Lord's language in instituting the communion was purely figurative. Now, common sense in all generations should have taken it as such, but one of the marks of the natural mind is the desire to turn spiritual truths into carnal and fleshly matters. We may have many illustrations of this tendency in the Bible itself. In the second chapter of the Gospel of John, for example, we hear our Lord saying, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now those who heard him immediately thought of the temple in terms of stones and bricks and masonry, while he, as it is written, was speaking of the temple of his body, which would be raised from the dead following his crucifixion. In the third chapter of John's Gospel, our Lord spoke of the necessity of being born again, and Nicodemus thought in terms of obstetrics, and wondered how a man could enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born. Christ, of course, was speaking of the new birth by the means of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. While in the fourth chapter of the same gospel, the Lord spoke to the woman at the well of the water of life, which he offered to her. She immediately thought in terms of the liquid H2O. When the Lord pursued the matter further, she thought in terms of plumbing and asked that she might have the living water, which he would give in order that she would not be under the necessity of coming down the hill to draw water from the well. Sometime later, on the same afternoon, and recorded in the same chapter, the disciples had come back to the well from the trip to the village where they had bought provisions. As the disciples were eating, the Lord abstained, and his followers besought him to eat. He answered, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. And the foolish disciples immediately thought in terms of food and wondered who had brought him his lunch. But he, of course, was speaking of spiritual food, which had given him strength. And in the sixth chapter of the gospel, the Lord declared, I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The immediate thought of the leaders of the people was that here was an expression of cannibalism and that such a thing would be impossible. No more examples are needed. There are many others in the Bible but the pattern is sufficiently set forth to show the natural trend of the heart that has not been spiritually instructed in Christ. Now, with reference to the false teaching that the bread and wine are not figures, but the very body and blood of Christ, we have seen Augustine's flat statement that such a doctrine is false and that the language must be understood as figurative. The false doctrine was never taught officially in the church until almost 800 years after Christ. It was the Second Council of Nicaea in 787 that presented the error in partial form, but the full doctrine of corporeal presence was first put forth by Radbertus in 840. Now in the centuries that followed this date, true learning declined and superstition grew rapidly. The Dark Ages were truly upon civilization. While a few voices spoke out against the error, notably Bertram and Berengarius in the 11th century, the error was finally decreed by the Lateran Council in 1215, at which time the word transubstantiation was invented. We recognize the prefix trans-across, as we use it in such words as transatlantic and transcontinental. The other part of the word we see to be our word, substance. The doctrine was that the real substance of the body of Christ was carried over into the bread and the wine of the communion service. The decree of the Lateran Council in 1215 was, quote, There is one universal church of the faithful outside of which no one at all is saved, in which Jesus Christ himself is both priest and sacrifice, whose body and blood are truly contained under the shapes, subspecibus, the kinds, of bread and wine in the sacrament of the altar, having by the power of God been transubstantiated, the bread into his body and the wine into his blood, so that, for perfecting the mystery of union, we ourselves might receive of him what he himself received of us. After the Reformation was fully established, the Council of Trent sat for long periods of time, setting forth the doctrines which were to be the official dogmas of one section of the church. It's worthwhile to put down the actual wording of the early canons of the Council of Trent. For Canon 1 stated this, if anyone shall deny, and I do, of course, and millions like me, if anyone shall deny that the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore entire Christ, are truly, really, and substantially contained in the sacrament of the most holy Eucharist, and shall say that he is only in it as a sign, or in a figure, or virtually, let him be accursed. Now that means, of course, that Augustine was accursed, for he specifically stated that the language of our Lord was figurative, and that means also that the uncounted hosts of evangelicals throughout all the centuries before and after the Reformation are all accursed. The second canon is, quote, if anyone shall say that the substance of the bread and wine remains in the sacrament of the most holy Eucharist, together with the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and shall deny that wonderful and singular conversion of the whole substance of the bread into the body and of the whole substance of the wine into the blood, the outward form of the bread and wine still remaining, let him be accursed. And again, I call to your notice that I, together with Augustine and all evangelicals of all ages, are by such a canon pronounced accursed. The third canon says, quote, if any anyone shall deny that in the venerated sacrament of the Eucharist entire Christ is contained in each kind and in each several particle of either kind, when separated, let him be accursed. Unquote. And once more the doom of Augustine and all the other evangelicals of all centuries is pronounced. Finally, the fourth canon states, quote, "If any anyone shall say that after consecration the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ is only in the wonderful sacrament in use whilst it is taken." and not either before or after, and that the true body of the Lord does not remain in the hosts or particles which have been consecrated and which are reserved or remain after the communion, let him be accursed, Unquote. Once more, the anathema is said to rest upon Augustine and all evangelicals, both before and after the Reformation. Now, the presentation of this material on the subject of the nature of the communion bread has been necessary because all that we shall see here and in our next study is contingent upon the understanding of this problem. If Christ has died once for all, then he cannot die in the communion bread today. And he has died once for all in Jerusalem more than 1,900 years ago. Then he cannot die again on the altars of any churches today. The curse which men have pronounced upon those who do not hold with the heresy of the real presence of Christ in the bread and his repeated deaths sits very lightly upon those who know the word of God. We have the infallible rule of Holy Scripture by which we must measure all things. We can readily see the error of men who have sought to explain a spiritual promise in material terms, and their curse is not upon us as the curse of God. We remember the story of the man born blind, which is recorded in John's Gospel. He, you remember, persistently withstood the religious leaders of his day. They sought to bend his testimony to their desire, but he steadfastly witnessed. We read in John "One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. The verdict of the religious council is recorded. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sin, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out unquote There he was excommunicated by the leaders of his day but the glorious sequel is in the next verse the lord jesus christ went to the outcast and revealed himself to him in his need thus it is with us today we rest confidently in the risen lord jesus christ and know that he being raised from the dead dieth no more death hath no more dominion over him what a wonderful truth it is that our Lord died once for all. Sin can never break out again in any world, in any place, among any group of beings, men, angels, or other beings that may exist. For Christ, having died and having been raised from the dead, dieth no more. What a wonderful truth. We have peace of mind and heart about any beings that are above, outside, and beyond this world. They are all in the hand of God either faithful to him as ministering spirits sent forth to those who shall be the heirs of salvation or as enemies who cannot work outside of the revealed plan and limitation set by God. And then, finally, we have the great truth that Christ, having died once for all, he does not die in any sacrifice today, but that he lives. And we stand here today and look to him and feed upon that death and that resurrection. Here is our hope. Here is our confidence, here is our trust. Having died once for all and being raised from the dead, he dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. And our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take the simplicity of this message in this hour, shall use it to thine honor and thy glory in the hearts of men. Lord, we pray thee, open the eyes of those who are truly believers in thee that they may see these things. That they may turn away from the things of men to follow thee and thee alone. We ask it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
2: Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy.
0: Our Father has completely accepted Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, as the one final sacrifice for our sins. Have you fixed your faith securely upon His finished redemptive work? We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, One Sacrifice. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse anytime, anywhere around the globe via the internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, One Sacrifice, or simply request message number R6-25. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, All Things Work Together. Romans eight twenty eight declares, We know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, even to them who are called according to His purposes. Yet many times we may feel that nothing good could ever come out of our problems and circumstances. This free booklet shows how this precious and powerful promise applies to any situation you may be facing and can fill you with hope and encouragement when you need it the most. Ask for your free copy of All Things Work Together When You Call a Right. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at Alliancenet.org.